um, as we begin, I'd like to review the symmetry of the structure. Uh, we have talked about this, but I want it in our minds uh, more clearly as we shift uh, in the symmetry uh, categories. <clears throat> the shift here is kind of like the difference between vanilla and <clears throat> double caramel caribou or double moose tracks. <clears throat> With vanilla, you get plain ice cream, okay, fairly bland generally. Okay. With caribou caramel, you get super bonus vanilla ice cream. Double moose tracks, even more of that. Anyway, you get the idea. So, mere symmetry is plain vanilla. Symmetry plus is a bonus, like the double moose tracks. And we'll put the label on that one when we get there. But let's remind ourselves that we're moving, Obadiah is moving, from a plain symmetry in the first six verses to an advanced or bonus type symmetry in verses 7 and following. <clears throat> All right, now, the plain or mere symmetry is the repetition of the same word. And in verses 1 and 2, as we've noted before, the same word, does anyone remember what it is? Large? Nations. All right, so <clears throat> verse 1 and verse 2 repeat the same word. In the, they're the same in the Hebrew text, okay, so they're exact duplicates, the nations, the goyim as it is in Hebrew. All right, now in verses 3 and 4, once again, we have the same word, one word in Hebrew, but it means two words when it's translated into English. <clears throat> what phrase is that? Bring down, very good, Ben. Bring down is repeated in both verses. All right, verses 5 and 6. Another phrase, it's actually one word in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word ache. <clears throat> oh, how, or also could be translated how. What else? A single word instead of two. Alas, very good. Yes, alas. <clears throat> All right, so nations, nations, one and two. Bring down, bring down, three and four. Oh, how, or alas, oh, how, or alas, verses five and six. Now, <clears throat> we come to a shift at verse seven. We have... The symmetry, in other words, we're going to have a repeated word <clears throat> again, but we're going to have something added to it. So symmetry plus what? And this is a fancy word that we've used. Does anyone remember what it is? Concatenation. concatenation. Symmetry plus concatenation. Con, C-O-N, cat, C-A-T, E-N-A-T-I-O-N, concatenation. Or... <clears throat> as your outline gives you an opportunity to fill in, or we could simply say, instead of mere or plain symmetry, bonus or concatenated symmetry, an extra special kind of symmetry, which uses a crocheting pattern. We've used that French expression, les mots crochet, as a hook pattern, as it's hooking his verses or his lines together. All right, now in verse 7, we have the ordinary symmetry of the word understanding. And you'll notice in verse 8 that that word appears again. Understanding appears again. But in verse 8, we have a word, or actually a phrase, but let's just take the name in the word. We have a word which is added 
which is symmetrical with the next verse, verse 9. In other words, there's a word that appears in verse 8 that also appears in verse 9. Do you see it? It's a proper name. Esau. So, we have the concatenation of in verse 8 of understanding plus a bonus word, Esau, which bonus word is going to end up in verse 9 once again. So we're going to have another symmetrical pattern, but a pattern which is beyond or enlarged beyond the mere or plain vanilla symmetry of verses 1 to 6. All right, now Esau occurs in verse 9, and now a phrase appears in verse 9 that will be repeated in verse 10. Do you see what it is? Be cut off. Very good. Be cut off in verse 9 and be cut off in verse 10. But verse 10 also has the concatenated symmetry. It has a word which appears in that verse and also appears in verse 11. It's a small word, a pronoun, You, yes, the pronoun you in verse 10, which is repeated in verse 11, and then added in verse 11 is a word which is going to reappear through verse 15. And what is that word? When I say that word which appears for the first time in verse 11 is going to reappear through verse 15 numerous times. The word day, correct. All right, now, I haven't given you the rest of the concatenated outline. It is in the handout number two in this series. But what we have here are two units of concatenated symmetry. Verses 7 to 11 are in front of you. And then verses 15 to 20, which are not in front of you, are also part of the concatenated symmetrical paradigm. But in between, in between verses 7 to 11 and verses 15 to 20 are verses 12 to 14, which have this repeated symmetrical, uh, not concatenated, but rolling symmetry of the word day, the Hebrew word day, which occurs no less than eight times in those three verses. In other words, what Obadiah has done is he's used this concatenated symmetrical pattern to sandwich the emphasis upon the day, which explodes upon your vision, explodes upon the page when you read verses 12, 13, and 14. So we actually have a sandwich pattern. Concatenated symmetry, verses 7 to 11. Concatenated symmetry, verses 15 to 20. Sandwiched in between an explosive, repetitive symmetry of the word day, verses 12 to 14. All right, that's the broad structural pattern. This is intentional. This is the mind of the writer. This is the artistic creation of Obadiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is drawing our attention when he begins this concatenation to the chain-link effect of the sequence of his prophetic argument, and then... He places in in feature, in sandwich form, this powerful emphasis upon the day which is coming. 
And then he rounds it off with a <coughs> concatenation which does not deal with Edom as the concatenation of verses 7 11 does, but a concatenation which deals with Judah. And we'll pick that up when we get to it. All right, so we've got this broad structural pattern in mind. If you don't gain anything else from the discussion, you see that there is a, a penetrating and powerful craftsmanship here. There's an artistry here. There's a poetic, prophetic artistry here. This is a masterpiece of construction, okay? Even when you can take the, consider, the into consideration the Holy Spirit's superintending the work of the prophet. All right, now, verse 8 also contains two new features. The first mention of the portentous day, or yom in Hebrew, and the note that Edom was famous for its wise men. The Hebrew hakamim, related to the Hebrew word hokmah, which means, and you can write in the answer there, hokmah means wisdom. Wisdom. The wise men of Edom and the issue of wisdom. We need to realize that the wisdom of the wise men of Edom was part of an international movement. It was part of an international group of scholars or philosophers or thinkers, whatever label you want to put on them. The ancient Near East, of which Edom was a part, had a genre called wisdom literature. And we have recovered some of that literature through archaeological excavation and <coughs> reclaiming of texts, particularly papyrus and cuneiform texts. We know a lot about Egyptian wisdom literature because we have hieroglyphic texts. We know a good bit about Mesopotamian wisdom literature because we have some Sumerian texts. We have some Babylonian or Akkadian texts. We have <coughs> samples of this broad genre which was common to the wise men of the ancient Near East. But we also have wise men in Israel. We have Hebrew wise men, Jewish wise men. <clears throat> and <clears throat> that raises the issue as, the, as to the wisdom literature of the ancient Near East, Edom, Egypt, Babylon, etc., the wisdom literature of the Bible. So if I'm asking the question, does the Bible contain hokmah or wisdom literature, what is the answer? What do you think? It does. And what example would you give? Proverbs would be one of the books of Jewish or Hebrew wisdom literature. What else would you list, Marge? Ecclesiastes, okay? That would be another book of Hebrew or Jewish wisdom literature. What other book would you list? Song of Solomon would be the third book of Hebrew wisdom literature. And what else would you list? Psalms, no. That's called the writings. Job, very good, very good. All right, so 
we actually have the genre of literature reflected, wisdom literature reflected in the Old Testament. Who is the author of Proverbs? Solomon. You're very much out of date believing that. How do you know that Solomon wrote it? Well, let's take a look. Okay, so keep your finger in Obadiah. Let's turn back to Proverbs. And what do you read in the first verse? Continue. Very good. All right. So the first verse <clears throat> claims to be the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son and king. But I said you're out of date because no modern scholar believes that Solomon wrote them. Somebody wrote them claiming Solomon's name, but he didn't write them. After all, he was a primitive. He didn't even know how to write, if he even existed. <clears throat> all right. Well, obviously, that's not what the text tells you, and that's not what a true believer believes, but it is very popular and increasingly popular in evangelical and reformed biblical scholarship circles. I am alerting you to what's on the horizon because, of course, evangelicals and reformed people never stay the same. They move. They want to become progressive with everybody else. All right. Enough for my sermonizing. All right. Now, what about Ecclesiastes? You turn forward to Ecclesiastes. And who's the author according to the book there? And go ahead and read it when you've got it. The word preacher in Hebrew is Kohelet, so sometimes this book is called Kohelet, not Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> now, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, isn't named. He's just given his titles. So, why do we say that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes? <clears throat> well, not only does tradition attribute it to him, but if we turn to the second chapter for a minute, and turn over from chapter 1 to chapter 2, you'll notice in verses 4, 5, and 6 of chapter 2, the person who claims to be the son of David, king in Jerusalem, enlarged his works, built houses for himself, planted vineyards, made gardens and parks, planted all kinds of fruit trees, made ponds of water to irrigate forests of growing trees, etc., etc. If that's biographical, who is it? It's Solomon. And Solomon is the only one that fits the picture, correct? So, from chapter 2, we can argue that the person who doesn't name himself in chapter 1, perhaps out of, <clears throat> shall we say, humility or something else, <clears throat> the preacher is, in fact, Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, as chapter 2 seems to, to powerfully suggest. There's no reason to disagree with the traditional identification of Solomonic authorship of Ecclesiastes because <clears throat> it's inside the internal evidence of the book itself. However, no modern scholar believes it. They believe, most of them, that it's written by a Greek, a Hellenistic Jew sometime after the Maccabean age. <clears throat> All right, now that brings us to the Song of Solomon. 
which once again, <clears throat> virtually no modern scholar believes Solomon wrote. But <clears throat> what do we read in the first verse? If you have it, go ahead and read it out. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. <clears throat> and in the Hebrew there, <clears throat> it's that preposition that we've talked about and we've shown you, and it actually it's on the study sheet, uh, the answer sheet for today. <clears throat> it's that preposition, la, L-E, which means two or four and can mean belonging. So <clears throat> the <clears throat> first verse of the Song of Solomon is, Shir Hasharim, Shir, song, Hasharim of songs, la shalomo, belonging. Did you hear the la? La shalomo, belonging to or for Solomon. In other words, it belongs to him. It was his. So that's what the Hebrew says. All right, so I alert you once again to the fact that many modern evangelical scholars and even Reformed commentators on the Song of Solomon do not believe that he wrote it and do not believe it is a reflection of his own marital experience. That's a problem. Because then you've got a book in the Bible which was written by a liar. And I don't think that that's the case, not only because God is not a liar, but God doesn't inspire liars to write his word. Okay. Now, Solomon's hand in this wisdom literature, <clears throat> with the exception of the book of Job, though the book of Job, where is Job from? Funny sounding name, right? You remember it? He lived in the land of Uz, correct, U-Z. Where's the land of Uz? Nobody knows. Not even smart aleck liberal scholars. So, the land of us is a mystery. But, when we turn to 1 Kings 4, verse 30, one of the reasons we looked at the authorship of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, when we look at 1 Kings 4.30, and if you have it, go ahead and read it out. Now, notice that wisdom literature in Egypt, which we've already commented on because we have copies of it, hieroglyphic copies, and <clears throat> sons of the East. The Eastern or Mesopotamian. <clears throat> now, that would also include what other country? East of Judah. Edom, exactly. Edom. <clears throat> and the wise men of Edom in this verse, which we're dealing with, verse 8. All right, now, you'll note, <clears throat> you'll note that Solomon surpasses the sages who are wise in the East. Edom. Mesopotamia and beyond. He surpasses the sages who are wise in Egypt, the upper and lower Nile all the way down into the Sudan. <clears throat> Solomon surpasses that wisdom. 
Well, maybe he's the author of the book of Job. No, not likely. First of all, he would have claimed it if he had written it. He does claim the other books of wisdom literature with his name. And the Hebrew of the book of Job is old, very old Hebrew, older than the Pentateuch, which leads many to suggest that it's older than Moses. And that the land of Uz is not attached to the promised land at all, not attached to Canaan or Palestine. The land of Uz is attached to the east, somewhere perhaps in the Arabian Desert or Arabian Peninsula, what we would know today as Saudi Arabia. Now, that's speculation. But nonetheless, Job is oriented towards the east, which is consistent with the eastern character of wisdom in the ancient world, as well as the Egyptian character, but also consistent with Solomon being wiser than those, perhaps wise enough to have collected the book of Job and preserved it for the Hebrew canon, perhaps. All of this is speculation. It's interesting to consider how the book of Job got into the canon since it doesn't seem to have come from the hand of Moses or any of the inspired prophetic writers. All right, well, that's the wisdom literature of the Hebrew Bible. But there's also Hebrew or Jewish wisdom literature in the intertestamental period. Intertestamental period. And what do I mean by that phrase, intertestamental period? Between the Old and the New Testament, give me some names. Between whose name and whose name? Malachi and Matthew. Think of your Bible. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, first book of the New Testament, Matthew. How many years? How many years are we talking about between Matthew and Terry? About 400 years in this intertestamental period. All right. What's the biggest issue in that 400-year period? The Maccabean Revolt, correct, in the second century B.C. All right, so the first and second book of Maccabees is a part of this Jewish literature from that period. All right, now that material is contained in a collection called the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha. And it is in the Bible, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Apocrypha is by Rome and by Eastern Orthodoxy regarded as inspired scripture. It is not regarded as inspired scripture by Protestantism. Why? Why don't Protestants accept the Apocrypha and why do Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox accept the Apocrypha? Randy? No New Testament writers or Jesus seem to quote from them. Very good. It doesn't seem to be acknowledged in the New Testament. What else? <laughs> There's nothing in it that can't be found. Okay. <clears throat> there are some things that are interesting in the Maccabees. We wouldn't know much about that history without first and second Maccabees, although we do have Josephus. 
Now, the issue for the Protestants at the time of the Reformation in arguing against the Apocrypha in the Roman Catholic Church, the issue for the Protestant reformers was, what is the Bible of Jesus? What is the Bible Jesus used? And that brings up the distinction between the Palestinian canon, the Bible of Jesus, and the Hellenistic or Greek canon, the Bible of the Apocrypha. Bible which included the Apocrypha. The Jewish rabbis never accepted the Apocryphal books. Jesus' Sanhedrin era never accepted the Apocryphal books. Why? Because they did not have the affirmation of the tradition of Jewish canonical acceptance. So, the Bible of Jesus is the Bible that you have, the Protestant Bible. There are those, those are the Old Testament books. They end with Malachi. <clears throat> no additions after Malachi. God is silent for 400 years. He resumes his inspired revelation with the New Testament, particularly with the voice crying in the wilderness by John the Baptist. All right. <clears throat> now, that's the, the simple reason that we reject the Apocrypha. There are a lot more detailed arguments. If you read any of the reformers on that issue, They'll go on for hundreds of pages in order to deal with their criticisms of it. <clears throat> but at any rate, there are two very famous pieces of Jewish wisdom literature which come from the intertestamental period. And they are cited over and over again <clears throat> in routinely in study Bibles, etc., as kind of containing ideas which are supported by other books of the Old Testament and some books in the New Testament. And the two of them I've listed there on your outline, Ben Syrah, Jesus Ben Syrah, also known as the book of Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus, probably written during the second century B.C. And the other book is called The Wisdom of Solomon, just sometimes called Wisdom. This is also an apocryphal work, probably... <clears throat> Most recent uh, literature, most recent research on this book is fairly persuaded that it was written sometime in the first century A.D. So it has the flavor of Philo of Alexandria, Josephus, and even some of the New Testament influence as well. All right. Wisdom literature. The wise men of the East. Edom had wise men. Part of a whole class of thinkers and writers that we, that we know about from not only surviving texts, but we know about from the Bible itself with its own wisdom uh, literature writers. All right, now, <clears throat> let's go back to that Hebrew word for day, the word yom. And if you glance, we're back to Obadiah, <clears throat> verse 8. And if you glance down to verse 15... You'll notice that it's expanded. The word day is not the only word there. There's a phrase in verse 15. You see it? Read it out if you see it. The day of the Lord. The Yom Yahweh in Hebrew. The day of the Lord. All right. Now, that's the only time the day of the Lord is mentioned. What I'm going to suggest is that verse 15 is ep-exegetical of verse 8. Ep-exegetical means that verse 15 is telling you what the word day in verse 8 means. 
So in between, in between verse 8 and verse 15, wherever that word day occurs is to be understood of the dramatic and eschatological Yom Yahweh or day of the Lord. Now, when we see it that way, when we see it as the eschatological day of the Lord, then the eschatological drama of that fateful day is contained in its finality. The finality of life, because that day brings death. The finality of right standing, because that day brings judgment and condemnation. The finality of even existence, it brings the absolute end. The absolute end to nations. Here, the nation of Edom is finally, finally obliterated. I don't mean finally at last. I mean finally, once and for all, finally obliterated from history by the wrath of God. The eschatological aspect of predestination, namely election and reprobation, is dramatized in their finality on that day when God terminates his decree, Jacob have I loved Esau have I hated. Now, I want to expand for a moment and reflect upon that phrase that I've used, namely, the eschatological aspect of divine predestination. I'm on the second page of your handout. That sounds like a mouthful, but I want to place content into that mouthful. First, the eschatological aspect of predestination means, quite simply, that there is a final or absolute destiny, a final or absolute destiny or end to creation, to the created order. Now, that means that the spiritual creation, which is a created order, the spiritual creation, the souls of men, they are created, the angelic spirits, they are created, the spiritual creation is predestined to an absolute or final end. There is an absolute end or destination, meaning final dwelling place, There is an absolute end or destination dwelling place for the souls of men, women, and children, and angelic spirits. One facet, then, of the eschatological aspect of divine predestination, one facet is the absolute end of the spiritual creation. Now, another facet of the eschatological aspect of predestination involves the cosmical or material creation. That is the created cosmos, the universe, the heavens and earth in biblical marismas, the whole of the cosmic created order. Cosmical creation is predestined to an absolute or final end. We refer to that final end as doomsday, judgment day, the return of Christ. 
the parousia, or as the inspired apostle Peter puts it in his second epistle, chapter 3, verse 12, the destruction of the heavens with an intense heat, or to paraphrase, the fiery destruction of the created cosmos. The absolute end of the material created order. So, there is an absolute or eschatological end to the spiritual creation, dwelling place, heaven or hell, and there is an absolute or eschatological end to the material creation, the total destruction of the cosmos or the uncreation of the creation. The uncreation of the creation. That is the ultimate goal. Even in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the intent was to uncreate it, ultimately, so that God himself and all that is associated with God's glory would remain. The pattern, then, of creation comes full circle. At the end, in the beginning, it will be as the end. Before the beginning, no material cosmos. After the end, no material cosmos. Well, what is after the end? What already is now. Christ in glory, in his resurrected body, with the saints in light, and that glorious heavenly city. That's what is now and will remain forevermore. It will never change. That was the eternal dwelling place of God before the creation. It is the eternal dwelling place of God at the end or at the uncreation. In other words, the symmetry of God's acts, the symmetry of the history of redemption, makes the end as the beginning, the beginning and the end, and the end in the beginning. Whether you agree with that or not, you must credit the symmetrical paradigm that is there. God did not create the heavens and the earth for material matter to endure forever. He didn't give material matter eternality. He alone is eternal. The only eternal dimension is God's dimension. Not terra firma, not this stuff. Okay. Now, the second element to consider in the eschatological aspect of predestination is the sovereign element. God has predetermined the end from the beginning, which means that the eschatological end is present to the sovereign mind of God from the beginning. The eternal end is present from the eternal beginning. That may sound like a paradox, but here's what I mean. What begins in eternity in God's sovereign mind ends in eternity in God's sovereign mind. We could say that the eschatological end is absolute and final from the protological beginning in the eternal sovereign mind of God. Now we're thinking about God's mind at work. 
Now we're thinking of God's conceiving and determining the plan of his mind that he intends to unfold in history. Now we're talking about the ineffable and inestimable mind of God. And when we do so, we're using a thought process which is close to the meaning of Peter's language. Here's the inspired apostle Peter again, but this time in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where he says, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, as the King James expresses it, or the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, as the New American Standard translates it. Notice the force of that language. God's sovereign determination of the end, the absolute and final end, is in him from before the foundation of the world. That determinate counsel or predetermined plan, that foreknowledge or knowledge ahead of time, is in him from eternity. The mind of God conceives, the mind of God carries, the mind of God holds the eternal end from the eternal beginning. You say, I can't get my mind around that. Well, you're not intended to get your mind all around it, but you can at least hold on to the concepts. You can hold on to the to the uh, <clears throat> idea. You see, you can grasp part of his thing. You can think this far along with his thoughts, though you can't solve how that can be. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong for you thinking the thoughts of God after him and realizing you're going to run up against a stone ball stone wall sooner or later, and then you're going to bow your head and just simply say, Lord Jesus, God, triune God, I bow in humility. Your mind is greater than mine. Your understanding is higher than mine. But there's nothing wrong with you walking along the steps of the path and getting up to that stone wall where the door is shut. It won't be any different in heaven. You won't be able to understand everything in his mind, but you'll understand more than you do now. I guarantee you that. But you see, he'll always be God. You'll always be the creature. His mind will always be greater and more unfathomable than yours, even your glorified mind. But you won't mind at all. Never mind, Lord. It is enough. You've got it sorted out in your own understanding and wisdom and greatness of power and glory. And I'm still a miserable creature saved by grace And I bow before your throne and admire your almighty, omniscient wisdom and power and knowledge. All right. Well, this counsel and foreknowledge has been known to God from eternity. Known to him, but not to you or to me, except where he reveals it, as in the case of Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Known to you and to me are all the divine invitations to come to his saving grace. All those wondrous divine invitations to know him even as he may be known by the operation of the Holy Spirit. All of these divine invitations and wooings, these love letters that he has sent 
about the fact that he loves sinners who come to him, who are brought to him, who are transformed by him, who are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. He loves them. He loves you. That is, you are the abject of his delight and affection. You know that. Though you may not know the hidden side of his predestinating and eternal decree. So you don't need to worry about what you don't know. You respond with faith and love and embrace of what you do know. But of course, the other side of the coin is we also know about those warnings. Those warnings that without his grace, in his son, by his Holy Spirit, you and I will miss the eschatological end of heaven and earn by our demerits the eschatological end of hell. The eschatological aspect of Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated as an absolute destiny predestined by the sovereignty of God. There is that eschatological aspect of God's sovereign decree of predestination of election and damnation. And with that, we'll take our break and return in, let's make it five minutes sharp, okay? All right, we're still in verse 8. Whereas we've noted the eschatological finality falls upon the wise men of Edom. In this verse, God indicates that he destroys them in the final judgment, reducing their storied wisdom to damnable foolishness. Now, Edom's reputation for wisdom is noted in the book of Jeremiah. So if you turn to Jeremiah 49 for a moment. Jeremiah 49, verse 7. Jeremiah 49, verse 7. And when you have it, go ahead and read it out. Concerning Edom. You're in the right spot. All right, now, there is a verification of what we've said, namely that the wise men of the East included the wise men of Edom because he asks the question there, is there no longer wisdom in Teman or Taman, which is, which is a city in Edom, as we'll see uh, in a moment when we look at the map. Well, what kind of questions do we have here? There are three what kind of questions? There are three rhetorical questions. And what's the tone of these questions? Sad? Judgmental? 
Accusatory? I, pardon? Accusatory? Accusatory? Mm, uh, <clears throat> you're on the edge. Uh, they're actually kind of taunting and sarcastic questions. <clears throat> so what's the, uh, uh, the uh, prophet from Anathoth? Who's the prophet from Anathoth? Jeremiah, okay. What's the prophet from Anathoth? What's he doing with these rhetorical? What's the answer to these rhetorical questions? Is there no longer any wisdom in, in Teman? What's the answer? No, there's not. Has good counsel been lost to the prudent? What's the answer? Yes, it has. Has their wisdom decayed? Answer? Yes, it has. In other words, he's taunting them with three rhetorical questions and peppering them. Tum, tum, tum. Okay? So, this, this pattern of the alleged wisdom of Edom in Obadiah and in Jeremiah and in a couple other places, as we'll see in a moment, reduced to foolishness by three rhetorical interrogatives. <clears throat> now, the name Teman or Taman in Jeremiah's text is a city mentioned in Obadiah's text in the very next verse. Verse 9 mentions the city of Taman, <clears throat> foolish wisdom of Edom identified with the city of Taman east of Judah and the promised land. Do you know anybody from Taman? Do you know a name of a person who lived in Taman? He's in the Bible. Eliphaz. Eliphaz the Tamanite. What book? Book of Job. Who is he? He's one of his friends. How many friends did he have? Three. three friends. One of Job's three friends or one of Job's counselors whom Job finally says, miserable counselors are you all. Why? Why were they all miserable counselors? All three of them were proceeding on the same presupposition. What was the presupposition that was miserable? That Job had sinned. Job Job didn't deny that he had sinned. Well, you, if you receive evil in this life, it's because you've sinned. Mm, okay. Job wouldn't be denying that. Pardon? His standing with God was dependent on it. That, that's related. <clears throat> What's Job's problem? He's suffering greatly, right? Yes. What do the three friends say? They draw a direct proportion, a direct ratio, because it's between his suffering and his sin. Is that true? No. no. It's because Job is described in the opening of the book as a righteous or blameless man. Not that he was perfectly sinless, but that he was outwardly blameless. And so... The dilemma, of course, for Job is to understand why God has allowed him to be inflicted the way he has when his friends say, well, God's afflicting you because sin deserves to be punished and you're obviously a great sinner and why don't you fess up? Why don't you confess the great sins that you've committed and then God will relent? And Job keeps 
declaring his innocence, right? He says, I haven't committed any great sin. I haven't looked at a maid with lust. I've walked the, 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 I've washed the steps of the poor with butter and milk and so on. He goes through the catalog of all the virtues that he's displayed in his blameless and upright walk before God. So why then is God afflicting Job? If it's not because he's greatly sinned and the three counselors, the three friends are wrong, there's not a direct proportion between sin and punishment, or we wouldn't have Psalm 73, right? Why do the, why do the wicked flourish and go unpunished? And the, the psalmist is dealing with it. <clears throat> so what about Job? What's the issue with Job? Why does God allow Satan to afflict him? True, true, but there is something Job does need to repent of. Because at the end of the book, in chapter 38, he humbles himself before God. He falls down on his face before the whirlwind appearance of the glory of the Lord. Why? I have heard of you with the hearing of my ears, but now I see you face to face. Go ahead, Bob. You were going to say Ah, there it is. Good, Ben. There's still too much of self in Job. Too much self-righteousness, which is a basis upon him thinking that because he's washed the steps of the poor, therefore he deserves something different. God showing to Job that in and of himself, he doesn't deserve anything else than what he has received. That corrosive Influence of self-righteousness. A little bit of it nurtured in Job's heart, priding himself in one of the, some of the good things he had done. And God must remind him, even by appearing to him out of the real whirlwind, that God himself is his reward. And therefore, Job's tremendous affirmation, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And he appeals for someone to intercede between himself and God. And that appeal is the beginning of the turnaround in the book of Job. Job beginning to see that God is breaking out of his spiritual pride that element of self-righteousness which needs to be crucified completely, perfectly in glory, but process beginning in this world. All right, so... Through Obadiah, God promises to destroy the persons, that is the wise men, with their intellect, their understanding. The Lord God manifesting the ideas of their minds as well as their personalities to be that of consummate fools. Well, might it be said of these Edomites, what the Apostle Paul says, of the pagan heathen in general, professing to be wise, they became fools. Romans 1, 22, because their foolish heart was darkened, verse 21. The foolish heart of the Edomite wise men was darkened, even as the foolish heart of Eliphaz the Tamanite was darkened, in the case of Job. <clears throat> this worldly wisdom, 
so prized by the pseudo-intellectual braggarts and demagogic savants of every age, this wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, 1 Corinthians 3.19. Esau was a fool. He was a fool to sell his birthright. Genesis 25, verse 34. Esau was a fool. He was a fool to threaten to murder his twin brother. Genesis 27, verses 41 and 42. Esau was a fool. A fool to marry pagan wives. Genesis 34 and 35 who grieved the heart of Isaac and Rebekah. Esau was a fool. He was a fool to spurn the grace of the covenant God had made with his fathers. Edom was foolish to imitate Esau, a pagan culture like Esau's pagan wives. Edom was foolish to imitate Esau, wise in its own eyes, like Esau was wise in his own eyes, spurning God's gifted birthright. Edom was foolish to imitate Esau, pursuing the accumulation of wealth like Esau in his separation from Jacob, so as to establish his power in a land crisscrossed with caravaned wealth coming from the nations. Edom was foolish. Esau was a fool. The folly of fools is deceit, says Solomon. Proverbs 14, verse 8, Esau was deceived. Fools mock at sin and guilt, says Solomon. Proverbs 14, 9. Esau, mocking the sin and guilt of murder in his death threats against his fraternal twin. But sin and guilt devour fools, and deceit destroys fools. The deceit of Edom vis-a-vis brother Jacob brought the wrath of God upon them, from the very same Babylonian conquerors who conquered Judah. Those Babylonians conquered Edom too. Edom knows the destiny of fools. The sons and daughters of Esau know the destiny of fools. God knows. And God has decreed the destiny of fools. Don't forget it. Don't forget it when you're troubled and bewildered by the foolishness of the generation in which you live. Don't forget Edom and her wise men, her elitist smart alecks. Don't forget it. Because God does not. God does not. The folly of fools is deceit. 
lies piled upon lies, one becoming larger in another, deceit, cover-ups, refusing to acknowledge the truth, deeper and deeper into the spiral of the trap for which they have dug themselves. God does not forget. Don't you forget it either personally or publicly. Any questions about verse 8? Now, in verse 9, notice the map, which shows you the location of Taman, or Taman, just to the west of the letter O in Edom. So you can see where this city was located that both Jeremiah and Obadiah mentioned, and other writers of the Old Testament mention it as well. The descending spiral of Edom's destruction reaches its conclusion in this verse. Economically, its commercial wealth, insularity, and prosperity has been ransacked, despoiled. There are no treasuries to fund the security or preservation of the nation of Edom. Her riches have been stolen from her, ransacked, and looted. Politically, her wise leaders and counselors have been removed, destroyed, killed, shown to be fools for the agreements they brokered, the treaties they signed, the state dinners they sponsored with alleged allies who turned out to be implacable enemies. The nation of Edomites put their trust in fools who proclaimed they were the wise scions, the elites of the nation. These so-called wise leaders were skillfully duped by the treaty partners with whom they sat down to eat. The same treaty partners who secretly and behind their backs pledged to bury all Edom, to bury all Edom, wise political counselors and leaders included. Militarily, Edom's mighty men mentioned in this verse, her warrior class of soldiers, her armed forces, Edom's mighty men are dismayed with fear at the enemy who taunts them, cowering at the enemy who harasses them, fawning bravery in the face of the mighty army, which is cut off and slaughtered, decimated by a force mighty than, mightier than her arsenals, mightier than her fighting men, her fearful, dismayed, armed forces with no morale left, with no esprit de corps left, with no courage even to act in their own self-defense left. Cowering in fear, emotionally emaciated, morally depraved, physically shattered and even physically unfit even physically impossible for the subject to make the grade. 
foolishness. Utter despicable foolishness. And yet, Edom had a high store of it 2,500 years ago. The result clause in this verse, verse 9, is striking. Notice the phrase, in order that, or can be translated, with the result that. The downward spiral of Edom's foolish pride has descended to the bottom, to its stopping point, to the slaughter, the cutting off of the whole nation. Notice, everyone, the New American Standard reads, literally in the Hebrew, every man, ish, every man, every person, generic, for every person slaughtered, cut off. Do you grasp this verse? The nation of the Edomites, look at that territory on the map. The nation of the Edomites annihilated, destroyed, obliterated from the history of redemption, obliterated from the secular history of the ancient Near East. This nation disappears. It disappears from history. 553 B.C., nothing but ruins after the Babylonian invasion and the destruction of of Babylon's king at that time, a king who incidentally was living in the Arabian desert, a story which is essential to understand Belshazzar's feast in Daniel chapter 5. And what was the name of that king who destroyed Edom? The name of that king who lived in the desert of Saudi Arabia, western Saudi Arabia. What was his name? Not Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is dead, long dead. This is 30 plus years after the destruction of Jerusalem. Nabonidus, Nabonidus, N-A-B-O-N-I-D-U-S. Nabonidus is the conqueror of Edom. Remember, you have seen, or at least you have in your packet, that relief, that stone relief. 600 feet high up above the plain of Sela, the city of, the ancient city of Sela, discovered in 1994, shows a picture of a royal figure and an inscription which suggests that that royal figure had conducted a campaign in Edom in 553 B.C., Nabonidus. Why is that a key to Daniel chapter 5 and Belshazzar's feast? Because Belshazzar is not the sole king of Babylon. When they say that Daniel will be third in the kingdom, if he translates the writing on the wall, it's because Nabonidus is first, Belshazzar is second, and Daniel will be third. So you see, you can't understand Daniel chapter 5 unless you understand Nabonidus, who's involved in more than the collapse of Babylon on the night of Belshazzar's feast. He's involved in the destruction of the nation of Edom. approximately 14 years before the destruction of Babylon by the Persians and Cyrus the Great. All right. Edom becomes a ruin and desolation. That's the statement of the prophet Malachi in chapter 1, verse 3. Interesting that one of the 
last books of the Old Testament returns to the narrative of Jacob and Esau, Judah and Edom. In verse 2, as a matter of fact, in that first chapter, you have the famous declaration of sovereignty, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And in verse 3, I have made Esau's mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of of the wilderness. A ruin and desolation is Edom, even in the memory of the prophet Malachi, nearly a hundred and fifty years after the fact, if we date Malachi to about 400 B.C. All right, that brings us to verse 10, unless you have some questions. To this point in Obadiah's visionary prophecy, you've seen some pictures in verses 8 and 9. You've got visionary imagery here. You have pictures to remember in your understanding of the book. Verse 10 brings us to the point where God has revealed how he will humble Edom's pride, how she will be ravaged by looters, or at least to this point he's revealed that up to verse 9, how her friends and allies will betray and deceive her, how her wise men will be shown to be fools, and how her wise, mighty warriors will be slaughtered. But throughout the unfolding tapestry of judgment and destruction, this litany that we've seen, from verse 3 on to verse 9, throughout this unfolding tapestry, the litany of devastation, God gives no reason. He doesn't give any reason for his condemnation of Mount Esau. What has Esau done to incur the wrath of God? With verse 10, the divine reason or cause is dramatically revealed. Now, I say dramatically revealed because this verse is very tightly constructed. With a prepositional phrase in the first word of the Hebrew text and a prepositional phrase in the last word of the Hebrew text. And in Hebrew, a preposition can be attached to the beginning of a word so that it just forms one word. And Obadiah does that with the first and last word of this line, thus He bookends the content of verse 10. In between the first and last word, in between the first word prepositional phrase, the last word prepositional phrase, he bookends the the guts, the heart of of the tenth verse. Now, what does that prepositional phrase mean? The first word in Hebrew may be translated for violence or because of violence or on account of violence. Let's take for violence as a preferred translation, and I'll indicate why in a moment. You'll see that it's symmetrical. And literally, the last word of this 10th verse in Hebrew may be translated to eternity, olam. There we have that phrase again, that Hebrew word again that we've talked about before, which could be translated forever. Now you know why I translated the first prepositional phrase for violence, because I want the symmetry. For violence at the beginning, forever at the end. Now, between the bookends, in between the two prepositional phrases, the heart of verse 10, notice the second person personal pronoun. The you or your. 
three times in this verse. This directive pronoun, you, O Edom, your, O Esau, this directive pronoun occurs in each of the three clauses of the verse. Your brother Jacob was violated by you, clause one. You are covered with shame for your actions against him, clause two. You will receive the eschatological penalty for your actions against your twin. To eternity, you will be cut off, clause three. The severity of God's eschatological judgment underscores the severity of Esau's sin against his fraternal twin, Jacob. And the thrice-repeated you accuses and indicts the guilty in dramatic staccato fashion. You, 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 Esau. So the accusation or the explanation comes with a repeated indictment. The divine accusation or divine indictment. Violence against a brother and a twin brother at that. This is a breach of a fraternal bond. One of the closest relationships in human nature has been betrayed, broken by Edom. It amounts to conniving at and endorsing fratricide. Fratricide, murder of a brother. And the violence... This violence, murderous, deathly violence, from brother Esau against brother Jacob, this violence unmasks the deep-seated hatred, envy, and resentment of Edom against Judah. And and (coughs) hatred against Judah, which goes all the way back to the threat Esau muttered in Genesis 27, 41, I will kill my brother Jacob. That Esau himself did not act upon his threat is immaterial. The desire was in his soul, on his lips, and please note in his character. And there it festered. There it festered until the Babylonians appeared outside the walls of Jerusalem and the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, with hatred in their hearts, just as Esau had hatred in his heart, gathered with the siege machines of Nebuchadnezzar, waiting and waiting for the moment to aid and abet, to cheer on the slaughter of the sons and daughters of Jacob. They had been waiting, waiting for this moment, for the length of their history. For shame. For shame to Ezekiel chapter 35. Notice what the prophet Ezekiel says. Because you have had everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, reference to Nebuchadnezzar, 586 B.C., At the time of the punishment of the end, therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will give you over to bloodshed, and bloodshed will pursue you. 
since you have not hated bloodshed, therefore bloodshed will pursue you. And I will make Mount Seir. Where's Mount Seir? It's in Edom. I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation. And I will cut off from it the one who passes through and returns. And I will fill its mountains with its slain on your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines. Those slain by the sword will fall. Notice the geographical description, a good bit of which we've described already. I will make you an everlasting desolation and your cities will not be inhabited. And then you will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel prophesies. On top of Obadiah's prophecy, on top of Jeremiah 49's prophecy, on top of Joel chapter 3, verse 19 prophecy. I'm not going to read that one out. The hostility and enmity of Edom against Jacob's seed, Judah's existence, etc. is endemic to the character of the nation. It goes with their chromosomes. They hate Israel. Edom had no love for Jacob in 586 B.C. Edom had no respect for Jacob in 586 B.C. Edom had no fraternal bond with Jacob in 586 B.C. except in name. And Edom had no peace with Jacob in 586 B.C. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be cut off Olam to eternity. Randy, you had your hand up. Did the Edomites ever appeal to the deceitfulness of Jacob in stealing the birthright? Uh, not with any cause, because, of course, Esau had voluntarily sold it. Right. right. You can't cry foul when your ancestor has already... Yeah, but I mean in a twisted way they could... Uh... Oh, yes, in a perverted way you could do that. You, you can always justify your own sinful depravity by twisting it to your advantage. Right, right. Yes, yeah, so that is a possibility. Notice the last word again, final prepositional phrase in verse 10, that noteworthy Hebrew term, lo'olam, which means unto eternity or to forever or to eternity forever and ever. We read it in many Old Testament contexts. As an eternal blessing from God to his redeemed people, I shall betroth you to me, la'olam, to eternity, says the Lord in Hosea chapter 2, verse 19. That image of God's betrothal of his people is one which is recurring in the New Testament as the everlasting description of the married supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, verse 9. In Hosea, it's the betrothal of his bride in the wilderness to himself, la'olam. In Revelation 19, it's the celebration of the marriage supper of that bride and groom, la'olam, to eternity. Or take Psalm 37, verse 18. Their inheritance will be forever, la'olam. Psalm 118 and 136, the recurring Loving kindness, la'olam, loving kindness of God to eternity. Over and over again in Psalm 136, it recurs throughout that psalm in every verse. It's like a litany. La'olam, 
quite often in the Old Testament, an eternal blessing in the eternal Lord God's blessed place of heavenly blessing, heavenly betrothal and marriage union, heavenly dwelling place of unending loving kindness and everlasting life. This is the wonderful, glorious, eternal, heavenly, blessed eschatology of the ransomed sons and daughters of the unmerited grace of God. That is a happy and joyful prospect and should lift the heart of every believer to the heavenly places in which it is secure. But that hope is not what the Lord here through Obadiah is projecting. Obadiah's olam here is the dreadful anti-eschatology or negative eschatology of an everlasting death, an eternal judgment, a never-ending punishment. Specifically here, La Olam conditions the irreversible death penalty, as one commentator states it, that Edom is no more. She has been obliterated in the wrath of God from human history. Never again will her pride arrogate her self-esteem. She is cut off from life if she is cut off from pride. Never again will her treasures of wealth be secreted in her mountain nooks and crannies. Her riches are cut off as she is cut off from her own greed. Never again will her treaty partners break bread with her. She eats no bread in her eternal state of death. The only taste she feels is a taste of dust and ashes, treachery and betrayal by her erstwhile friends and allies. To eternity you will be cut off, O Edom, says the Lord. To eternity shame and dishonor will cover you, O Edom, says the Lord. To eternity the penalty for your fraternal violence to Jacob will be visited upon you, says the Lord. But we who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ turn to the end of Obadiah's prophecy and to the final use of the Hebrew la preposition as in la olam here in Obadiah 21, la Yahweh, to or belonging to the Lord. There is a forever person with a forever place of blessing, a place of blessing and redemption, as that 21st verse reads, a kingdom, Yahweh, a dwelling place with the Lord God, his beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit. Obadiah's prophecy delivers the sons and daughters of the grace granted to Jacob into a forever kingdom, Yahweh, a kingdom of Yahweh's dwelling place, a kingdom of an eternal heaven. Don't forget the end of the book in the midst of its middle and beginning. Any questions? Shall we pray?
Lord, we bless you for warning us about the anti-eschatological kingdom of your judgment and preaching to us in the preaching of Obadiah's prophecy, the certainty of a olam condemnation. We are happy that we have been warned, but we are even happier that we know a different eschatology. An eschatological kingdom of an eternal heaven before your face, dwelling with the saints in light and all the holy angels, that wonderful assembly of those who praise your name before your throne and before the throne of the Lamb. There is the kingdom to which our hearts are lifted up. You are the person to whom our lives are given. Your Son is the Savior whose blood we prize. And your Spirit is the delight who warms and indwells our hearts. We pray, O Lord, that this concluding gospel proclamation of Obadiah will cheer our hearts in the midst of a foolish world, cheer our hearts, the kingdom which belongs to you and your Son, and your blessed Spirit. And remember especially, O Lord, this day, your servant of that kingdom, Peter Vostine, and bless the treatment that will be administered to him and the skill of those who are thinking of his case, bless it to his health and restoration. We pray, giving him into your hands, for Jesus' sake. Amen.